Hello, and welcome to the Rockefeller Center's podcast, Rocky Talk. My name is Shadi Mefrazan, and I'm a 22 at Dartmouth. Today, I'm joined by Professor Lisa Baldez, a professor of government and Latin American, Latino, and Caribbean studies at Dartmouth College. She's the author of Why Women Protest, Women's Movements in Chile, and Defying Convention, U.S. Resistance to the U.N. Treaty on Women's Rights, which won the 2015 Victoria Sheck Award for Best Book on Women in Politics and 2015 Best Book on Human Rights, both from the American Political Science Association. She is also one of the founding editors, with Karen Beckwith, of Politics and Gender, the official journal of the Women in Politics section of the American Political Science Association. Professor Baldez, it's a privilege to have you with us today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So for those who may not have as much of a background in your research or more largely the intersection of gender equality and the law across the world, where does the U.S. currently stand in comparison and how, are the, how does their view on women's rights differ from the rest of the world, uh, perhaps from a legal standpoint? Um, so the question is uh, about the status of women's rights worldwide. Yes, <laughs> that's a big question. Um, so well, let me let me talk about it in terms of the research that I do and the kinds of questions that have interested me um, throughout my research. One of the things I've always been curious about is when people talk about the status of women or women's rights, who are the women that they're talking about? And I have been long concerned um, with what I see as a, a kind of a, sum, a set of assumptions within research on women's rights and activism and advocacy around women's rights um, of a solely progressive understanding of, uh, of the status of women and women's rights. Um, and a somewhat limited ability to see that not all women uh, support progressive women's rights. Um, and this is this to me is a really fascinating thing, uh, the way that assumptions get made about who are the women um, uh, that are being talked about. Um, one example um, of this came through in the Women's March um, uh, immediately following the inauguration of Trump uh, in 2016, um, that this was seen as, uh, you know, the reaction of women in the, across the United States and women of various socioeconomic classes and races and forms of identity um, all united in opposition to um, the policies and the, the tactics and strategies and the, and the, the personal uh, attacks at that time of, of Donald Trump, uh, especially with regard to his race against Hillary Clinton. But that was immediately following our, the election, uh, the results of an election in which a majority of white women had voted to uh, elect Donald Trump. And that was left out of that discussion. Um, and that was accepted as such. And people were, in fact, surprised to learn that uh, a majority of white women uh, voted in favor of Donald Trump. So those are the kinds of issues that I'm always curious about, um, both in terms of who is included and who is excluded with regard when people talk about women, and also what are the prospects for bridging those divides and exclusions? So are there issues on which that uh, all women truly share a set of interests um, or a, a position on a set of issues? Um, I think that uh, Violence against women and gender-based violence is is one of the issues where we see the the strongest amount of convergence across uh, women that share political ideologies. Um, 
participation in the, in the political process is also an issue uh, that that women um, uh, tend to share across political divides. In Latin America, nearly every country uh, in the region has laws that require a certain percentage of candidates for office to be women, and these are widely known as gender quota laws. What's really interesting about gender quota laws, one of the many things that's very interesting about those laws, is that women in political parties across the political spectrum united and formed coalitions to support the passage of those laws and persuade their male colleagues to vote for them. And that's something that we rarely see in the United States. So that's a a little known um, aspect of uh, women's political representation in Latin America. Great. So as I as I kind of began with this really large question of what is the state of women's rights, um, you've kind of explained that there are big differences across the world on how women's rights are incorporated into the law or represented through our politics. What are some examples, like you said, of Latin American countries that have really used their constitution or domestic laws to advocate for women's rights? Um, and in what way has that taken place in addition to that gender quota that you've mentioned before? I mean, I think I think one of there's so many exciting things happening with regard to the status of women in Latin America today um, and so many fascinating things and so many terrible things at the same time. But one of the most interesting to me is what's happening in Chile right now Um, in. In 2019, uh, there was kind of a, they call it the social uprising, a massive uprising of, uh, of, of people demonstrating um, against the government. Um, the demonstrations were prompted by a rise in the cost of uh, metro fare um, that quickly escalated into being a, a broader protest against the legacy of the military dictatorship of General Pinochet that remained in Chile, remains in Chile through the constitution, but also through the current government um, of the right-wing uh, uh, presidential, right-wing president, um, Sebastián Piñera. The result, or one of the results of this massive uprising has been that Chile is now on, in the process of holding a constituent assembly to write a new constitution which is an extraordinary thing. I mean, it's extraordinary, especially from the perspective of the United States, where we've only had one constitution um, the whole time uh, that we've been a country. That's not necessarily the case in Latin American countries. Um, But uh, in the process of choosing who will be seated at that constituent assembly, there is a gender quota law requiring that half of all the candidates for people being considered for election to the Constituent Assembly and all of the delegates who will be seated at the convention, so the candidates and the actual people who will be represented, must be women. So it's a a parity rule applied to the Constitution. And this is really the first um, instance of a Constituent Assembly where that's been the case. it, it makes me think about, you know, the founding of the United States and the drafting of uh, the Constitution when Abigail Adams said, remember the ladies um, and uh, how far uh, Chile has gone in terms of incorporating gender equality profoundly into the process of kind of re, literally reconstituting the polity um, in Chile right now. And so that that to me is um, a really interesting thing. Um, there are... There has been some movement on uh, laws with regard to reproductive rights. Uh, uh, Argentina recently passed a law liberalizing um, abortion, um, which is uh, didn't 
really quite astonishing um, given uh, the conservative and Catholic culture within Chile and also given, um, sorry, within Argentina and the region as a whole, but also given really strenuous opposition uh, from conservative forces um, in Argentina. So that battle uh, over reproductive rights has been very highly mobilizing um, in Argentina, in Chile, in Mexico, um, and other countries throughout the world. So those are just some of the things that are um, kind of breaking um, in, in recent weeks that I think are, are really quite dramatic. And uh, the United States has a lot to um, potentially learn from the, the, the kinds of possibilities that we're seeing in other countries. So that's definitely a very stark contrast between the two countries. Uh, we, we see a lot of, I think, worldwide action from the UN or a lot of multilateral agreements regarding uh, women's rights. Your research in particular also focuses on the convention on, on the elimination of all forms of discrimination against women or CEDA. Um, what, what sort of role has the U.S. had in that and how has history maybe shaped that lack of a role perhaps? Um, what is the U.S., um, where, where is the U.S. with that today compared to other nations? The, the treaty you're talking about um, is kind of like a, thinking about it, it's like an international bill of rights for women worldwide. Um, it's one of nine human rights treaties overseen uh, by the United Nations. And CEDA, as it's called worldwide, has been signed by uh, every country in the world except for six. And the United States is one of the six. Um, so the reason for that um, is due to the very um, uh, contentious and polarized nature um, of women's rights uh, in the United States um, and divisions between the Democratic and Republican Party over the status of women that really um, emerged in the 1980s around the issue of the Equal Rights Amendment, which was um, uh, a very polarizing issue. In the 1960s and 1970s, the Democratic and Republican parties shared they, sh they shared policy issues. They, they both supported um, the Equal Rights Amendment. They both supported uh, um, uh, Title IX, um, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, protecting uh, women in the workplace. And that began to change um, in 1980 um, around the issue of um, abortion, but also around the issue of the Equal Rights Amendment. So 1980 was also the year that CEDAW was open for signature. And the United States um, signed, the, the first step of ratifying a treaty is signing it, which indicates an intent to ratify. The United States signed it along with uh, many other countries. But when it came to the floor of the Senate, and it's come to the floor of the Senate various times um, since, the, since 1980, um, it has very quickly become um, uh, a very highly polarized uh, debate, um, not only about the status of women, but about the United States' position with regard to human rights more generally, with regard to the, um, the United Nations more generally. Um, and uh, despite attempts by nearly 100 women's organizations, there have been uh, opposition from almost nearly 100 uh, conservative organizations opposing ratification. So it's it's been very difficult um, when a treaty requires two, a two-thirds majority and approval by the president uh, to be passed or to be ratified. Um, the threshold is really, really high, and the level of conflict over that issue um, is also very high. And one could argue... Um, 
that with the Democrats in control of the presidency, the House of Representatives and the Senate, there is a chance uh, for CEDAW to be ratified. There's a chance for other kinds of women's rights policies. Um, but with regard to CEDAW, the two-thirds majority um, seems like uh, a bit of a stretch. So that seems um, unlikely. Um, I think the, the most important one of the most important things about CEDAW, and that's kind of difficult to do without CEDAW, there are a lot of things that we can do without CEDAW, um, but one of them is that CEDAW requires countries to report on the status of women um, in terms of the laws and in terms of the actual status of women before the United Nations every four years. And that's something the United States has never had to do, has never had to say, to kind of look uh, uh, holistically at what are what's the set of policies with regard to the status of women in our country, where are we uh, doing quite well and where could we be doing better, and to subject ourselves to um, international scrutiny and to open us up to say, look, you know, we have nothing to hide. Um, we'd like to talk about this. And, and I think that would help uh, prior, prior, increase the priority of women's rights um, on, uh, on the political agenda. That's a really interesting point in terms of how far the U.S. potentially has to still go with regards to women's rights. Um, what, what's the way that the U.S. currently involves women's rights with the law or does enforce women's rights uh, or doesn't enforce women's rights? Uh, how far can they indeed go to really reach the example of some of the countries that you've previously mentioned? So one, you know, one indicator that people refer to quite a bit is that um, – the election of women to political office and the appointment of women to um, uh, executive um, political positions, or especially within the cabinet, but also within um, the executive branch and, and government agencies as well. So that's an issue on which it's one, it's really easy to compare, right? So um, I could give you a, a website right now and you could see as of today, what country has the highest percentage of women in elective office according to their most recent election, what that percentage is and kind of how uh, countries fall. Um, uh, the United States apparently at this moment is in position, I believe, 82 uh, between Lesotho and I can't remember the second country. Um, but not company that we typically consider to be our peer countries. Um, and so this um, election, this most recent election of 2020, um, was uh, women, a record number of women were successful in winning um, a legislative office in Congress, both within the Democratic, but also importantly within the Republican Party. So the increase was particularly significant within the Republican Party. Um, and that's something that the United States has addressed um, in a variety of ways in terms of uh, promoting the status of women. Um, there are no legal impediments to women running for office, um, but uh, parties have um, party, political parties have tried to uh, raise awareness about women, um, uh, encouraging women to run for lower level office with the idea that there's a pipeline uh, to winning higher office um, that puts it puts people on the path toward thinking about higher office. Um, some of the um, most enduring research within political science suggests that women tend to be more likely to run for office when they are asked to run which is a very simple intervention, right? So if I said to you, Shadi, have you ever thought about running for office? Um, you might have thought before, like, oh, I can't run for office. I'm not qualified to do that, um, which on, on balance, on average, um, tends to be different for men than it is for women. But being asked and being given that just little bit of boost of confidence 
um, and affirmation uh, plays a key role in getting women um, to to actually put their hats in the ring. So the way that the United States has dealt with that um, is by lots of different kind of informal measures. But around the world, uh, gender quota laws have been a way to kind of cut through all the various obstacles to women running for office and to make parties legally liable for uh, forwarding um, slates that are that show more gender equality or higher representation for women. Um, so, you know, this is an ongoing issue. I think it's really, really important. Um, I think when uh, women see that there are women uh, running and winning elective office, it is uh, an indicator that women belong in political office and women belong um, uh, in uh, the, the, kind of the broader polity. Um, I think one of the reasons why the Equal Rights Amendment is so important is because it would introduce language into the Constitution that... Um, that discrimination on the basis of sex has no place in the United States. And that is an important symbolic move uh, for defining, you know, the Constitution is so important uh, to us as Americans um, that that people believe strongly that that should be part of uh, what the United States stands for. Um, so those are, I think, you know, Political representation is one issue when there's just, you know, there's measures happening at every level of government in, in, in lots of different ways. Um, but we are not really thinking about formal laws. It's, it's difficult to think about that because of the way that candidates are nominated for political office, which is very different in the United States from how it is in other countries. So you mentioned a little bit about the Equal Rights Amendment or, or the ERA, and that's that's been a decades long now kind of process, um, unclear when it will reach the end. But uh, to, to those who think that a judicial interpretation of our um, our current conversations in terms of gender equality is enough for us and, and that the ERA is maybe perhaps unnecessary or doesn't really take precedent in terms of all the other different things that Congress needs to get done these days. Uh, what would you say to those people and what can the power of Congress to enforce women's rights do for the U.S.? You know, I think, I think um, uh, there are two ways that I think about the Equal Rights Amendment. One is in terms of it as, you know, what impact it would have within constitutional law. And I've actually done research that looks at um, states, uh, about 22 U.S. states have Equal Rights Amendment in their states, state constitutions. So I did some research looking at what impact having an Equal Rights Amendment at the state level has on sex discrimination cases. And it showed that it did have a positive and significant impact, although very small, very slight impact on uh, whether or not the court applied uh, strict scrutiny, whether or not it um, what level of judicial scrutiny it applied to the case, and whether or not the, the courts found in favor of the defendant. Um, uh, and so that's one way to think about it is like, okay, well, what difference would it make in terms of the, the kinds of decisions that the Supreme Court would reach that it's not reaching now? And there's, you know, there's a long uh, body of research that, that tries to address that question. I think on balance, um, you know, it depends on who's in, who is seated on the Supreme Court. You know, what are the kinds of cases that are being brought? Where is public opinion on these issues? Uh, as well as the, the, the constitutional jurisprudence. But there's another aspect to it, and that's the political aspect. And I think, you know, 
um, I think the Equal Rights Amendment has been very mobilizing, especially for young people who are really surprised to find that the Constitution doesn't necessarily enshrine uh, gender equality the way they simply assumed it would. So the campaign to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment in and of itself, regardless of whether or not it's successful, uh, raises people's awareness about what the status of, uh, of, of, of women's rights is within the country um, and, and gives people uh, some really important questions to ask uh, and to make some changes. Now, I think there's also a danger that people have a lot of expectations about what the Equal Rights Amendment would do were it ratified. Um, and I think uh, it, the, the, the kinds of things that would change are much more limited than some of the things that activists, you know, hope. Um, so you'll see uh, ad- advocates saying, um, uh, you know, uh, there's a gender pay gap. So if we had the Equal Rights Amendment, that pay gap would be reduced. And it's like, well, I'm not so sure. I think it's a little more complicated than that. It's not necessarily a direct uh, impact. Um, it might have some uh, downstream consequences. Um, so it there's a political aspect to it, I think, that is um, perhaps just as important um, as the legal constitutional aspect. And this is what people mean when they talk about um, that we have already have a de facto Equal Rights Amendment, um, that the kinds, the awareness of that the Equal Rights Amendment campaign has generated have promoted the kinds of legislative changes that people thought we needed an Equal Rights Amendment to make, but it turns out we, we could do them in other ways. Yeah, that, that is a really interesting argument. And, and as someone who also learned about the Equal Rights Amendment in high school, um, I can also attest to, to being surprised that something like that exists and is still in the process of coming to fruition in the first place. Moving forward in the near future, perhaps, how, how do you see jurisprudence or action by Congress? Uh, what, what actions or cases do you see coming up in the next years or months related to women's rights that you think will be interesting or can maybe change things or question what currently exists in the U.S.? Yeah, I'm, I think, you know, again, I think there's a lot of hope um, with Democratic control of both houses of Congress that um, that that policies near and dear to the members of the Democratic Party will be able to be legislated. And, and Biden, his women's agenda has it's a you know, it's a very long document with lots of policies um, in it. You know, I think in the um, just with regard to the Equal Rights Amendment, one of the things that Congress could do pretty quickly is um, adopt legislation kind of um, uh, that would change um, the the legal status of how we think about ratification, uh, the, the deadline that was initially attached, which was an act of Congress. Um, you know, there, there were bills um, on being considered in the last four years, and there are bills that will be brought up again um, that, that could make, that could smooth the process of ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment um, and make that pretty easy. Um, you know, I think it, it remains to be seen what, what is the room to move for the Democratic Party in this political context? What is that going to look like? Um, and I, you know, the, the race, the election was so close. Um, it is such a narrow majority in the Senate um, that I am uh, optimistic and cautious, but but cautiously so, um, about the prospects for um, real enduring change with regard to women's rights. Um, and here again, I think um, uh, 
there we need to be very careful about uh, the presumption about what is in the interests of women and uh, there are deep partisan divisions that divide women um, as well as men in terms of policy. And it's not just regard to uh, reproductive rights issues, but all kinds of issues. Um, and those will be hotly contested. Um, uh, and it, there's been a lot of change in Latin America in terms of the um, mobilization of a uh, uh, evangelical and Catholic uh, conservative right Um really wanting to kind of uh, pull back on women's rights issues as, as well as rights for LGBTQ um, people. And I, um, I think that's something that we may see um, more of as people become concerned that the, the Biden administration and the Democratic Senate will kind of uh, be able will have more power um, than, than it, they ordinarily would have. That's going to trigger some um, uh, um, counter mobilization and counter protest. Well, uh, we'll end on that note today. Uh, thank you so much to Professor Baldez for joining us today. I've greatly enjoyed our chat. Uh, to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. Until next time. This podcast is a production of the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not of the Rockefeller Center. This episode was produced and edited by Laura Howard. We hope you'll join us for our next episode, and if you want more information, you can find us at rockefeller.dartmouth.edu.